Welcome to the IPA Real Estate Show. Investments, property management, and acquisitions from Pensacola, Florida. Here are your hosts, Austin Tenpenny and Attorney Tim Baldwin. What's up, IPA listeners? Austin Tenpenny here. And Tim Baldwin. We are here for episode three of the IPA Real Estate Show. Um, we're excited to be with you. Thank you guys for tuning in. We are. Uh, it's been a wild week over here at Adore uh, with Tim and I. Our team. We're preparing for a big acquisition. We're closing in a few weeks, and it's uh, been a emotional roller coaster to say the least. <laughs> um, it's been of, fun though, Austin. You, you can't deny that. Yeah, it's fun. I mean, I love it, but it's uh, sometimes I'm a glutton for punishment. But. Um, <laughs> No, we're excited to be with you today. We're going to be, we don't have a guest because the expert is sitting right across from me. Um, We're going to be talking a little bit about automation and the future of property management. And uh, we're also in the beginning here, we're going to dive into a couple of news topics that uh, we thought might be relevant to our listeners. So Tim, why don't you dive into our our first couple articles? Yeah, so there's a couple of pretty interesting uh, things that have happened here. Um, One one particularly in Florida and the other one is a federal national uh, issue issue. So the first one is um, that I want to talk about is the the HUD housing and urban development. Um, so they have just announced that they are going to be changing rules with HUD, and it has to do with a landlord who uh, accepts HUD or is in a HUD project is going to be limited on their ability to deny applicants who have a certain criminal history. Um, this has not really been a bright line rule before. For years, HUD issued opinions and statements regarding what they essentially, you know, proposed as uh, a disparate impact on the minority community in America, because um, statistically they they have a higher rate of crime uh, than non uh, minority members. And so, to help with the housing availability for that segment of society, they are going to be putting some rules in place that landlords cannot uh, reject applicants when they have criminal history. Now, apparently they're going to um, sort of carve out exceptions to that as it relates specifically to a criminal history that they would say is directly related to uh, the tendency. So, in particular, we're talking about crimes involving property damage or crimes involving violence. And, and those, I think, what we're going to see is those are the two areas that landlords are going to be able to still reject an applicant because of that. Although there's, there's going to be questions, guaranteed questions, about, well, what, what degree of crime are we talking about? Are we talking about a simple battery? Are we talking about, you know, assault? Are we talking about assault with a weapon? Are we talking about... Murder, like what are we talking about when it comes to violence? Because there's a large degree of uh, charges that could be, um, you know, uh, charged against that person. And then, and then property damage. I mean, are we talking about arsony? Or are we talking about, um, you know, um, vagrancy or, you know, whatever, defacing property, that kind of thing? So we don't, right now, we don't know because they haven't published it yet. But this has always been a pretty, um, sensitive topic in in the sense that landlords a lot of times you know when someone has criminal history they don't they don't want to rent to them i mean they're they're a high risk tenant and so historically landlords in in hud have still been able to deny those applicants but now they're going to be facing a time when they can't so 
how does that affect their business? Does it affect their business? Um, these kinds of questions we'll have, we don't know yet, but they are definitely going to come across the board for a lot of landlords. Yeah, and you know where my head initially goes is what's the what's the liability on on the landlord now? Because I know in our our rentals that we manage, criminal history is a big thing. You know, we want to make sure we're placing somebody in there, and um, yeah, so that's. It's going to be very interesting how all that plays out and, and what liability becomes on the landlord. But it, it is just on HUD housing right now. But, yes. You know, I guess, you know, at what point does that transfer over to the non-HUD housing? Yeah. Uh, yeah, because HUD does generate um, somewhat of a, uh, what's the word, culture? You might say mm-hmm. culture or just a, an overall um, standard that um, courts can look at and, um, you know, real estate associations can consider HUD standards um, and so it's, um, I think it's going to bleed over. I really do. I think it's going to bleed over. And I think that what it also does is it opens doors of opportunity for attorneys, uh, who are primarily plaintiff's attorneys, you know, looking for class actions mm-hmm. and, and they're going to take this change and try to set up cases against non-HUD landlords. And it's under the theory of disparate impact, as I said before, and it's a theory based on uh, unlawful discrimination or violation of fair housing. And I think that using the HUD standards, they're going to try to set up cases for anybody, any landlord. And so if you're a an owner of, you know, 500 units or, you know, apartments across America, or you manage um, single family homes across America, you're going to be a target because, um, you know, it's, it's there because the, the facts that the attorneys want to see could be there. And so this HUD decision will, I think, have an impact on that. Yeah. No, it'll be interesting how that plays out. That's uh, definitely something to keep a close watch on. Yeah. And then the other one is uh, in Florida, Governor DeSantis signed into law what's called the Live Local Act. And does a couple of interesting things to me. One of them I'm sure you'll want to speak to. But for me and what I do in property management, um, it has a direct bearing on us, and that's the act has now taken out of the statute the local government's ability to control rent. So in Florida, it used to be that local governments could enact rent control under extreme circumstances, basically basically a state of emergency that directly affects housing. And so there was a recent case that came out of the COVID era where a local government did, in fact, do that, and it was challenged, and on appeal, it went on appeal, and that was the question of whether the local government had the authority. And the appellate court said, no, they didn't, because the circumstances essentially weren't extreme enough to where it justified the rent control. But now, it's out of their hands completely, so now we don't see it, which, of course, as you know, um, helps landlords, and it uh, certainly takes away the fear or the potential that, given some circumstance, they may not be able to to increase rent. No, that's huge. Uh, rent control, obviously I'm biased being on the landlord side, but just basic economics of housing, that's, uh, you know, that's going to turn away developers from producing more housing, bill for rent housing. Um, it kind of affects housing across the board with inventory being so low. And um, so I definitely think that's a good thing. Yeah. And there's been a lot of groups in the past that have advocated for rent control and in certain parts of America, you do see that. I mean, it's not even uncommon to see it across. You don't, you don't even need an emergency. It's just, hey, there's rent control here. And, and there are some places around America that do that. 
Um, but at least for now in Florida, uh, that's not going to happen. Yeah, and I think there's a big misconception from society in general on to landlords that own long-term rentals and, you know, there's all these big margins and, and I can assure you the margins are not big. You know, it's, uh, we got to fight for every percentage point, especially now more than ever. Inflation doesn't just affect your average consumer, it affects the entire economy. And so the cost to own, own that home is more property taxes go up as, as population growth increase. I mean, it just goes across the board. So, yeah. um, no, that's interesting, but I think it's, it's definitely a good thing. So the other part of this act though, it does, um, give, a lot more flexibility for investors and builders and developers who want to build uh, and manage affordable housing. So it takes away some of the regulatory ability of the local community or local government to restrict affordable housing. It also opens up more um, or sure, deregulates a bit of the, um, the, the number of stories that can be built, um, the location of where they can be built. And so, obviously, the whole point is, in Florida, Governor DeSantis and the legislature, apparently, wants to try to inject more affordable housing into all communities, not just certain counties who maybe historically have more affordable housing. Um, so, that's another part of the bill, which, of course, I think is going to have an impact on the market. I mean, you can speak to this, yeah. Austin, and your expertise of it, that when there's more affordable housing, of course, it's going to put more of a strain on um, non-affordable, or just normal housing. Um, and as affordable housing projects go up, more people are going to be looking for affordable housing units to rent. And so that takes a little bit of the market away from the normal housing projects and pushes it in the direction of affordable housing. So from your perspective, Austin, what do you think this bill does for, and for private investors um, who are looking for a place to, to build projects? Yeah, I mean, if they're specifically looking for affordable housing, I definitely think it's a good thing. And any type of affordable housing to me is a good thing for any economy locally or, or nationally because uh, the cost of living is greater than it's ever been. And um, a lot of people do need homes and it's, it's difficult. So I do think it's a good thing uh, no, no matter which way you spend it. But from the de developer's perspective, People ask me, being a builder and developer my whole career, people ask me all the time about the housing affordability topic. And it's, in my opinion, based just in my opinion, based on, on my experience, it's impossible without government interaction um, to do things like increasing the density. If the zoning allows for whatever, 10 units per acre, if you can increase that density and help spread the cost of your land and your site work and your cost out, it definitely helps get the developer's cost down. But even with that, it's so expensive to build and develop without some type of giant tax credit or some type of government assistance. It's very difficult for uh, for a private developer to want to go do affordable housing. So mm. um, I definitely think this will, will, will help the situation. But And I've, I've read a little bit about that, and there's a lot of moving parts to it. There are some also in that same uh, bill. There's a lot of good tax incentives outside of the density. That, that would be a good thing. Um, but yeah, no, I, I think it'll help. We'll yeah. see. So you think uh, just at this point, I know it's, it's, um, it's early in its stages to see how the actual effect of what happens years down the road. But I mean, if you were to rate that bill, do you think, Hey, this is good for Florida or I think this might be more negative than positive? In my opinion, I think it will be good. I, I really do. Um, 
it, 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 with any type of increase in housing inventory is going to help regardless of the price point. It's going to help the overall uh, housing situation that's going on in our country. Um, and so I, I think it's a good thing. Do you know um, any local developers here that have been talking about, hey, I want to take advantage of the tax incentives or you know the money's available given what's now happening? I don't know any directly. I've actually talked to a few. I mean, we've looked at doing it at a door. Um, and, you know, another, this is a whole nother conversation, but with, with the combination of uh, government assistance to the developer to help develop it, affordable housing, combined with the opportunity zones, we've got some opportunity zones in the Pensacola area that also, if you kind of combine the two, the tax benefits from the opportunity zone combined with, with the affordable housing um We've explored it, but but not too hard, just because the uh, local. Interestingly enough, it, it happens a lot at the local level. The local, you know, the state will pass these things, and then at the local level, they have to, you know, adopt them and have all these programs to go get them and deploy them. And so, anyway, it's super complicated. I'm by far an expert. I know enough to be dangerous, but <laughs> anyway, I hope it's a good thing. Yeah. I'm on the record, so I may eat my words, but yeah. I hope it's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> good, good. Well, I know that you, you. There's another article or a situation that's come up that um, you think is yeah. worthy of talking about? Yeah, no, this one was super interesting to me. This article is from The Real Deal. It's a, a, a good real estate, commercial real estate news uh, platform. The title of the article is Blackstone Closes $30 Billion Real Estate Fund. And it's hard for me to even fathom having a $30 billion fund. And what's the most interesting to me about it is uh, for those of you who don't know, just Google Blackstone. I mean, they're a giant uh, private equity firm. Uh, I think 80% of their holdings are, are real estate related in some form or fashion, commercial, rental, um, whatnot. But what's most interesting to me about that is uh, uh, Stephen Schwartzman, the CEO of Blackstone, CEO and founder, he wrote a book called What It Takes, and I read it uh, a few years ago, and he goes into detail about how Blackstone in the 2008 crash, they kind of saw it coming and they prepared and they took advantage of that crash with all those homes that went to foreclosure. And they deployed millions and millions and millions of dollars to go buy these foreclosed homes. So fast forward, leave out a bunch of details, cut the chase. They ended up forming Invitation Homes through that. Invitation Homes at the time uh, was the largest single family rental holding company in, you know, I don't, I don't know if it's the world, but it was massive. Um, it sent shockwaves like, wow, you know, Blackstone saw it. They had the dry powder ready to deploy, and boom. And so this fills them launching this fund. They, I think they started it, I don't remember exactly, it was like a year or two ago they started raising these funds. Um, it's some of the brightest minds in the world at Blackstone studying these economic trends. So it, it, when I saw it, I was like, hmm, that feels very... You know, I'm not implying there's going to be a crash, but you know, they know something we don't. And what's funny is the very first sentence of the article is what I thought. It says, talk about some dry powder. I mean, they got some powder to deploy. And so the commercial real estate world is going to be watching really closely to see what they do with this fund mm. over the next few years. So anyway, wow. I thought it was interesting just watching what the big dogs are doing in, in the private equity space and real estate space. And um, Well, it certainly makes sense when you, when you keep up with just what – is going on in a, in a short term um, when you read articles from real estate experts they are saying they're tr I think they're trying not to be 
too negative about it, but I think that they are, they are they're definitely saying, hey, in the next couple of years, we're going to see a pretty big dip and prices are going to go way down. Foreclosures will increase. I mean, that seems to be pretty consistent amongst the experts. Yeah, for sure. And, and what's really interesting is, I mean, it's already happening. Um, I mean, we're seeing it on a very tiny scale at the local level, but even at the, at the national level, the multifamily guys that have bought apartment complexes in the last couple of years that had a floating rate debt and interest went up and, um, you know, they're, they're defaulting already. Um, or uh, a big one, a big topic is if they got a, a construction loan to build an apartment complex within the last few years and they underwrote the, the financing terms at X, well, when that construction is complete and they go from their construction loan to their permanent debt, now the cost of that debt is likely substantially higher than they underwrote it five years ago. So mm. there's already blood in the streets, and it's only going to get worse. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, the office retail space is getting crushed right now um, because of those same debt problems. So it's happening. Yeah. I mean, it's no secret. Right. Um, so... It'll be very interesting to see how it plays out. Well, <laughs> um, there's a lot there um, to, to try to go after, but um, what do you think? I mean, if you're talking to an investor right now or someone who's thinking about getting into investment, is it, hey, I, we think this could be a good opportunity for investors, um, even if you don't have you know billions of dollars like Blackstone, but you have some money, it's like, it might be soon that you have an opportunity to start buying up some real property. Yeah, no, this is a huge opportunity. I mean, especially over the next 12 months, there's going to be a lot of good buying opportunities. And even now, um, there's good opportunities that, that we're finding. And the biggest thing is, you know, if, if you're buying it direct, that's one thing. But if you're investing in a real estate syndication or a real estate fund that's that's buying properties, the number one thing I recommend is just look at their debt structure and their capital stack. Um, obviously make sure it's fixed rate debt um, and you know the, the floating rate debt is is still a risky bet right now and so just how they do their their capital stack is very important right now and that's what we look at hard to make sure we're mitigating risk uh, with how we're structuring the financing so interesting well yeah. I guess we'll see as uh, each day goes by kind of how that affects us and um, you know what we do in response yeah, no, I mean, I think the most important thing is if you can if you can buy it at the right price and um, you know your your rents aren't aren't too crazy. Now is the time to buy, and it's a safe place to put money uh, in real estate and tangible assets where you can't have a run on the banks like yeah. like you do. Um, and because right now it's it's cheaper to rent than it is to buy in mm-hmm. most places, and so um, and there's still a need for housing. Um, so, yeah, anyway. well, I've been just, I mean, driving around town, it's just amazing to me to see the number of apartments going up and the number of, uh, you know, single-family neighborhoods. It's just just about every street, it seems like you drive on, there's a new project, there's a new building project. Yeah, yeah. No. And they're going up fast. It's <laughs> they go quick. They're, they're trying hard to get them rented fast, so. Yeah. But no, so I think it's a good opportunity to segue to our uh, kind of a topic for today, which is automation and the future of property management. And obviously lots of things to discuss on that topic with with automation relative to property management and and where it's going. And um, yeah, 
it's super interesting that the technology that's out there now with the property management softwares and and whatnot. So once you once you dive in a little bit, yeah. Well, I mean, long are the days from years ago that uh, you could manage properties um, with a pencil and the paper, you know. Uh, and really, what it doesn't really seem that long ago. Even whenever I first really head dove into this business back in two thousand, really it was two thousand six, but two thousand seven is when I decided I was going to start specializing in property management and landlord tenant law. Um, even at that point, uh, it seemed like there was still somewhat of a mom and pop sh- shop feel to property management. And uh, you know, whenever I would help a company out and um, with their you know documents, their forms, their process, procedure, and you looked at um, what they had in place, or maybe what they took over from another company or another you know guy who had you know twenty five properties, it, it was so um, it, it was disorganized there there was no consistency really to it um it was just it was very sporadic and it was um sort of fly by the seat of your pants kind of approach um and there are still people that try to do it that way but if you're a serious property management company if you're in and you're a especially if you're brokerage um and you have the aspirations of growing into any sizable number the automation aspect to this business is essential. Um, so that means a lot of things because in property management, there are so many aspects to this business. And a lot of people, people may not realize this about the business, but it's one of the more complicated, um, tedious kinds of businesses that I've, that I've come across and been involved with. Um, and so Property managers, brokers, investors have got to get their minds around this idea of systemizing and automating as much of the process as is humanly possible because by and large, property management companies um, are not, what's the word, very profitable, I guess I'll just put it that way, without that. Um, the more properties you take on, the more staff you got to hire. And, and the cost of the business just keeps going up and up and up. So, yeah, you may add more properties, but you just increase your cost and your, and your margin just stays pretty small, uh, even if you've grown to a large number of properties. So in, in today's world, thankfully, there's a lot of ways that you can use uh, software to do this. And, um, and, and the funny thing about it is, is that, I mean, you... The number of programs that are out there are innumerable. I mean, like, there's all kinds of programs out there. But it's knowing how to pick the right ones that work together in a cohesive, systemized way uh, to where you can automate everything in the process. That's, a, that's actually easier said than done. There's so much to it. So in general right now, just to say this, is that if you're um, in a business managing properties, you have got to get this part of it right. You've got, you've got to really research it. You've got to really start um, mapping out the entirety of this business. And I'm not talking about just the steps from, you know, rent, you know getting in an application and what are the steps to get to a, a tenant move out. I mean, I'm talking about every little decision that happens within that umbrella or under that umbrella. It, it's, um, yeah, it's, it's a lot. Yeah, to say the least, it is a lot, and I can speak to a little bit being that 
we kind of started uh, a property management business from scratch at a door and you know, I've always considered myself to be pretty business savvy just in general with, with understanding numbers and reading a P&L on a balance sheet and, you know, accounting type stuff. And um, the property management business is, the margins are very thin and the, the room for error is, is small. But once you get it fine-tuned, um, on the efficiency side, there's a, a huge opportunity there. And and I, I'll never forget the first time, one of the first times I, I met with Tim when we met, uh, however long ago it was, you had told me uh, there was like this ratio that you kind of use that's like for every 100 properties you have one employee or something. Talk about that a little bit because that yeah. was eye-opening to me because at the time at, at, at how I had built it, I was like, yeah, I've got six employees and 50 properties. Yeah. <laughs> it was like it was not working. Um, and talk a little bit about that, like how that you know equates because people think, oh, a property manager for a scattered site deal is charging – 10% of gross rents or 8 to 10%. But if you think about that, you know, 200 bucks on a $2,000 deal and you times it by however many, I mean, you need a lot of properties just yeah. to cover your overhead costs yep. um, if you don't have it running efficiently. Right. Yeah. Well, I like to think of it as one property manager per 100 properties. Now, that doesn't include, you know, accounting. Right. You know, that doesn't include maintenance. Uh, but just the person who is managing the properties, uh, in my view of it, there should be one per 100. Now, that doesn't, for some people, that may seem like, well, that's that's too much. That's too many properties per 100 or per property manager. But when you have a system that automates and you have all of the step, I mean, every little step mapped out to where the the decision-making part of it should be minimal. There's really only, um, you know, if I could put like a, a, a ratio on, uh, you know, true decision-making um, points of the process, it should be maybe 10%. 90% of it really should be, here's the process, um, if this, then that kind of conditional logic that is implemented from the beginning to the end, then your property manager is not stressed out with having to make all these tiny decisions and, you know, these little steps that they really got to think, okay, what do I do now? Like, what's this? And, oh, I forgot to do this. No, it should be completely mapped out. Um, and when you do it that way, it runs so much smoother to where that person, and honestly, they, they become way more effective because um, they are less stressed. They don't feel so overworked. They feel more in control of what's happening. They know what to predict and what to um uh, you know, what sort of foretelling what's going to happen on, on a tenancy. And so, you know, their product productivity goes up. So um, that's, that's sort of the, that's my um, model, if you will, is one per hundred. Um, and then, but then of course you've had, you have, you know, your accounting and your, your maintenance. And, and I kind of lump the inspections sort of in with maintenance. Those people have also got to know how this business operates. And all the steps that take place, because with with each of the steps that um, take place in the within the year of that tenancy, so from application all the way to move out, um, you know, maintenance has a role to play, inspectors have a role to play, accounting has a role to play, and they all need to know at what point are they even brought into the picture. So 
when they all see the picture, they all see the steps, they all see where they where they where their role um, is relevant in the process. Then it just it's just a a well oiled machine. It just runs so much smoother. Yeah, no, it's it's huge, and and of course, you know, some people might say, well, yeah, you got to have a plan, um, you know, to ship, show everybody knows the role, and and that's really easy to say, but because of the complexity behind property management and the the legalities with it, with leases and all the moving parts, uh, that plan uh, is very robust. Yes, <laughs> for lack of better words, because. Um, you know, and then you always have a plan for the unknowns. And so anyway, if A happens, then you go to B. And then if B happens, you go to C. And um, Tim, through his, his years of experience in this, um, he's built this incredible uh, operations manual, essentially, that kind of maps all that out. And so it's been, once you talk about just that briefly and then talk about uh, the software we're using and how you can have an operations manual and then how that ties into your software and um you know, we use Buildium. Yeah. We're not getting paid for this ad, but we'd like to, Buildium, <laughs> if you're listening. Um, so I'll reach out to him later. Yeah. <laughs> um, but just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, well, I mean, so I look at it from the standpoint of, first of all, your operations manual should set the tone of the company. It should set the uh, parameters of how employees um, operate, but it also provides them with, the knowledge of, you know, within the confines of, you know, the lease agreement, the property management agreement, Florida statutes, or where, wherever you are, um, how do we how do we know uh, what the rules are? So the operations manual really should be setting um, the, the rules in place to know even um, how do we even look at this. So, and then from there, you have to have all of your documents your lease agreement, your property management agreement, you know, all the addenda, uh, the forms, the notices, the letters, everything has to tie into what we know to be the right way to handle situations and processes. So that has to be tied into how the operations manual uh, is drafted. And then from there, you have to have a way of implementing it because you can have a great operations manual. You can have all these forms and notices and agreements but that's, those are just the, the tools. Now, how, who, how do you start using those tools? And that's where um, the programming we use, well, we use Buildium, and that, you know, Buildium and other property management software um, out there help you to essentially manage information. So who, who are we dealing with? What's the property? What's the rent amount? Um, you know, basic information. It, that's what it helps you to manage. But it doesn't help you with the day-to-day um, and the actual step-by-step. It doesn't do that. And it's funny because years ago, I mean, back when I first really started getting into this, I used to think that that's what those programs did. It wasn't really until I dug into it. It's like, no, they don't do that at all. So there are, um, the only one that I really know of, and there might be some out there. In fact, it's funny because going back a little bit, I started to, uh, develop through Excel spreadsheets this system, right? We're, we're trying to go through step-by-step, step and, and it's arduous. And then I stumbled across uh, this program called Lead Simple, which a lot of the property management software programs out there will partner with, um, you know, a lot of different vendors for, for different purposes. But Lead Simple was one that um, we discovered 
And this is exactly the kind of step-by-step that property managers need to automate process. Uh, it, I mean, it, and again, it's a plug. So if you're Mr. CEO of Lead Simple listening, um, make sure you uh, email <laughs> us and we'll talk more about it. But it's, it, it is a great program. Uh, you know, it's not perfect. There, you know, there's some things that I wish it had that it doesn't. But um, it is, from what I know, uh, the best one out there for automation. And I can tell you that uh, without the automation aspect to it, and just so you know, if you haven't seen this program, you should look at it. Because if you don't have that kind of process automation, then quite frankly, I'm not sure how you can grow to any sizable amount of units to manage and increase your profit margin. Now, you might make more money, but you're not necessarily increasing your profits because this this program and, and these kinds of programs, and if there's another one, if you have one out there that you know that's better than Lead Simple, let me know, but I haven't seen it yet. But it allows you to take every single leg, and there's lots of legs to this, to this table, um, and map out every single little detail. And it allows you to um, use that conditional logic that I talked about earlier, if this, then that. And uh, it's tremendous. And um, it's that kind of automation that's going to enable your company to, to grow and make more money at the same time. And not to mention, let's just face it, you're going to offer a way better service to both the owner and the tenant. For sure. And I, I think it's important to note, too, that like with automation, with any type of automation, with Lead Simple or, or you know, whatever it is that you use and whatever software you're using, you know, every business is structured a little different. Everybody has the basic principles behind it. But when you sign up for a Lead Simple or whatever, it's important to know that you have to build that thing out how you want your systems to flow. And it is a lot of work. Yeah. It's very cum- cumbersome. And without your 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 playbook and your manual of hey a needs to happen for b on a mass scale it's difficult it is not easy and it takes no. a lot of time and then you're constantly fine-tuning it um but it's well worth it for, yep. the, for the efficiency that it creates oh. well and i'm just you know i'm just interested to see how the property management the, the i'm not going to say ai i'm not sure if if there's anything out there like that, but I venture to say at some point there's going to be some kind of development of software that helps um, even to make decisions for property managers. I mean, I can think of right now ways of doing that myself. Um, it's as far as um, we know the process, we know the law, we know the forms, we know, you know, if this, then that. So if it can come to a point where the information that we're putting into the system is automatically generating outcomes or at least suggested outcomes or recommended outcomes. Um, to me, that's even going to be a bigger part of the future of, of property management. And, um, but, you know, you've, you have to start somewhere. And, you've, and if you haven't done this yet, you need to do it now. Um, if you have any aspirations of growing and getting bigger. Um, and, and two, what you have to think about is um, it's not even just creating the process. Because you may have a process in your mind that you think will work, but there's a lot of legalities that go into these decision-making processes that you need to have an expert landlord-tenant attorney to actually look at your process, uh, look at your forms, look at your agreements, look at your notices, making sure that those um, gel with your process. 
because you may not realize that you're actually setting up a failure somewhere down the line in your process because you just didn't set it up right. So there's there's that part of the of the process too that people need to be aware of. Yeah, and and two the you mentioned something about with AI and um, I mean already with ChatGPT it's such a powerful tool. And I'm sure I'm sure somebody's already tapped it and is somehow using it in property management. I know they're using it in real estate. I saw something on uh, that Bigger Pockets posted on Instagram recently. Ways real estate investors are using Chat GPT and I mean generating listing descriptions. And I mean there's a long list of people of what people are already doing to use Chat GPT and the, the AI. What's going to be interesting is if when it reaches. The, the point where it is making decisions and the legalities behind a lease or a PMA or, you know, I don't know. I could see that getting, there's going to be this whole other layer to the law with, with AI and real estate and yeah. property management. So anyway, that's, that's going to be crazy. Um, and I, I'm, it, it's all happening very fast too. Yeah. So yeah, we have to keep, keep, keep our heads on a swivel as we progress. So one thing too, that is worth noting um, is in my experience, sometimes it's difficult to educate owners, property owners, um, and investors of, first of all, what makes a property management company different from another. And let me just say this, just because the property management company is a large company doesn't necessarily mean they're handling the management correctly, okay? So that's not the only thing you're looking at. So from your perspective, Austin, and dealing with investors all the time, what do you think? I mean, how would you, how would you say you can educate, a property management company can educate investors of, hey, this is what you're looking for in a property management company. What, how would you answer that? Yeah, I mean, the, it's not always, it, it's really easy from the investor landlord side to, you know, just focus on the numbers because, you know, you're looking at your, your NOI and um, so it's easy to get caught up in that and getting caught up in, well, what fee are they charging and, and whatnot. But what people tend to forget is they'll go cheap or, or they'll, you know, whatever it may be. But the better thing to look at is, okay, look at the fee and look at their, how they handle protecting you from a liability standpoint and how are they screening their tenants because I can assure you, an eviction costs way more than a half a percent more on the property management fee. Yeah. Um, and the damage that bad tenants can do to your property because they're just, you know, basically farming out property management, just cranking as many doors as they can get and collecting fees. Um, and But, yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is to understand people lose sight of that. Um, as laws change and, and whatnot, it's important that a property manager has a good beat on that. And, um you know, and two, a property manager that, you know, I'm obviously biased for a door, but um, <laughs> we, we're not just property managers, we're, you know, we're investors too. And so we, we have a different perspective uh, than most to where we provide the helping you on the liability side, but also on the financial side with helping you mitigate risk and making good informed decisions before you buy a property. Um, yeah, I mean, there, there's a whole lot, a whole lot there, but yeah. It's a lot. It, there's there's a lot more to it than just just the bottom line. Um, and don't you know picking the lowest fees not always the best. Right. <laughs> no. In fact, it may it may be a warning sign that that's not the right company. 
because I mean I know that there are companies out there who will just cut their fee to the lowest amount, cut all cut all the uh, ancillary fees, um, and promise the moon. And when it comes time for delivery, uh, it's not there. And and not and not to mention this part of it too, is that there. If I can relate this to like being a doctor, I mean, you can go find any doctor, but you need a doctor who specializes in your illness, who knows every alternative that there possibly could be to make you well. And and so, yeah, you're going to pay more for that specialist, but obviously it's well worth it. It's the health of your body. Well, your portfolio has a health too. And so you need someone who is an expert at every single aspect of what it means for that portfolio to be healthy. And that's the part that sometimes it can be difficult to communicate that. But I think, um, you know, to be a wise investor, that's what you should be looking for. Yeah. And two, it's also important to know that when you're making your decision to pick a property management company, it is very expensive from the investor landlord side to change property managers, especially if you have a pretty substantial portfolio uh, in the downtime involved. And um, that's also something that just popped in my head yeah. just on the logistics behind changing your property manager. And um, I mean, we, we deal with it with transitioning when we buy a property and we're tra- transitioning from the seller's property manager to ours and the amount of work involved and, um, you know, it's also something to keep in mind when you're thinking about, about these things. But. Yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, because that takes away your property manager, your other employees. It takes that time away from actually managing properties that you have to try and get information from another property manager. And as you know, Austin, you know, when you get information from another property manager, it may not be complete, you know. And so you're left without information or maybe there's problems that you're not, you're not even aware of. And... You don't know it until after you've gotten those property onboarded, um, but the amount of time and effort and energy that goes into it is pretty substantial. It's a lot, and it, more on the larger larger scale side, like what, what we're kind of doing, the importance of having a good property manager that has excellent record keeping and excellent bookkeeping is, you know, when we're making a decision to buy these, you know, these, these giant properties, there's always an exit factored in. And so if we buy a property in 10 years from now, you know, we have to exit the importance of having good record keeping, good books, a well maintained property that has regular inspections is critical to the, our performance when we're, you know, planning on that exit. And so it's also something to keep in mind on, the, on a, a larger scale, not so much on the smaller scatter site, but on a larger scale, that's it's huge. What do, you, what do you think is the primary um, characteristic that investors um, trust? So, you know, as you know, uh, you know, you do business with people you trust or people you like. And so what, what is the, that essential, do you think that essential ingredient is for an investor when they're shopping or if they're, you know, wanting to, to buy more properties and they got, they've got to trust who they're putting these properties uh, into. So what do you, what do you think that is as far as a trust element? Yeah. I mean, definitely having a seasoned team um, and a seasoned, you know, broker or, you know, leading the charge is, is imperative um and then you know the the how they communicate how how the property manager communicates with the investor is is super important especially like from prime example right now it, you know we're going through a 32 million dollar acquisition 
we have a lot of money on the line and the importance of regular communication with the property manager on what's going on, how often are you poking your head in these units, what tenants tearing them up, <laughs> you know, yep. uh, keeping keeping up to date with market trends on rents, you know, in any pro forma, there's always, you know, a rent growth potentially that investors plan for and um, the communication is huge. Open lines of communication and regular reporting to that investor is, is definitely a good question to ask the property manager and and then, of course, just the obvious is the experience of who's who's running the show over there. Yeah, <laughs> who's yep. calling the shots? Well, I know, I know that you know from my perspective. Um, yeah, I've handled hundreds of evictions. I don't, I don't know how many, but hundreds, and I've and I've handled thousands of landlord tenant issues. And so, when you, you know, when you see the the number of pitfalls that are out there, and you design your business model around avoiding pitfalls because it's the pitfall that makes you lose money. And so um, just really having a keen sense of awareness of where can I lose money is so, so important. Yep. So. Yep. No, I think that's good. That's all good advice. I mean, we could sit here forever. Yep. Um, yep. I, I think of many things, but I think that's a good, good stopping point for us. Um, What's one piece of advice we could leave leave the listeners with today um, in relation to picking a property manager? I think it's um, I, I, from from really from where I sit and and just knowing what I know about this, I think it's finding someone who is truly an expert at property management. There's a lot of property management companies out there, but finding the ones who are led by leaders in where the employees are trained in that expertise, in that leadership, in that experience, and who are expected to follow that process, to me, would be um, key. Couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's great. Well, thank you guys for tuning in to Episode 3. Um, uh, episode 4, we're going to be uh, uh, recording in a couple weeks, and we've got a great guest lined up uh, that I think will be uh, provide some great insight. And so thank you guys for listening and uh, be sure to tune in.